So we're going to dive in. We're going through Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. It is immediately after Genesis. Incredible book. We trust the sufficiency of the Scripture here at LifePoint, which means that whatever the Scripture says today, uh, the Scripture deals with stuff that, that, that deals with every issue we will undergo in life. The things that we say today, hopefully, is going to teach you about God in a way that whatever comes, whether it is family strife, whether it's health issues, whether it's moments like we're in in our country right now, all of those issues, uh, we can use these scriptures to help us deal with all that. That's what the Bible is. And so, so as we dive into this, you're going to see some things that are very applicable to what we're going through now, okay? So uh, we're going through Exodus. What we try to do is deal with the major things more so we've read every verse but more than breaking apart every verse we're dealing with the major themes that we see through the plagues for instance one of the themes is the uh, literal uh, fame of God God says I've done these things that the Egyptians may know who I am I've done these things that the Israelites may know who I am God's reason for the plagues, one of the themes is the fame of God, which is very important in our world because as you and I both know, most people in our world do not know and follow Jesus Christ. Most people in our country do not know and follow Jesus Christ. Most people in our state do not know and follow Jesus Christ. Now we need to take that lens and we need to zoom it way in. And when we do that, we see and recognize that most people we work with do not know and follow Jesus. Most people we go to school with do not know and follow Jesus. Most people in our neighborhoods, and if we get even into our homes, in many of our homes, most people don't know and follow Jesus. As a matter of fact, most people think God is outdated and irrelevant. Most people feel like, you know what, the best thing about Jesus is that we celebrate his birth by giving ourselves gifts, right? Uh, most people uh, think God is like a grandfather sitting on a rocking chair in a, on a front porch giving out candy to all the kids and treating everybody the same, right? I mean, now that God doesn't, that kind of God doesn't inspire worship. Doesn't inspire my worship. That kind of God inspires you to be nice, maybe, but he doesn't inspire worship. That kind of God's not going to inspire you to lay everything on the line, right? And so we need to know God, and that's what we see in the plagues. Matter of fact, if you think God is outdated and irrelevant, then you don't know the God of the Bible. When you begin to know the God of the Bible, the God that Moses is talking about here, and you know that he is omnipotent, which means omnipotent. Uh, omnipotent, all-powerful, all omnipresent, all-present everywhere, omniscient, all-knowing. When you know he is sovereign, when you know that he is in total control, he is judgmental, he is discriminating. In other words, everybody's not getting into heaven, only those who know him. His judging, his judgment is just, his standard is right. When you know those things, you're not going to think God's outdated and irrelevant. You, you might revere him and fear him, but you're not going to minimize him by thinking he's outdated and irrelevant. So I'm hoping you're getting to know God through these plagues. I'm hoping that getting to know God through these plagues is helping you deal with issues that come your way. And so as, as we look at this, we've looked at nine of the 10 plagues. And today we're going to look at Moses laying out the 10th plague, which will hit in chapter 12. He does some introduction here because it's the last one and he does some preparation, all right, to get the folks ready to exodus, right, to exit. So let's dive in. Let's look at chapter 11. We're going to cover the whole chapter. It's only 10 verses this time. So let's read verses 1 through 8 from the beginning. It says, the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more and I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt afterward. He will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. 
Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold and jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But that not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man nor beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. All right, now this is an incredible passage and we're going to learn some amazing uh, truths as we start rehashing, to be quite honest with you, a dominant theme here. Notice that God tells Moses, I'm gonna do one more plague, only one more. After this plague, he's not just going to let you leave. Pharaoh's going to run you out of town, okay? Now, the theme that we've seen, the, the dominant theme outside of the fame of God probably is the sovereignty of God runs all through the plagues. Every plague, God is screaming his sovereignty. It's in every plague. Here you see the sovereignty of God. Notice God doesn't say, Moses, man, I hope this is the last one. I mean, I, I think he's broke down. I think he's wore down. I, I hope I don't have to continue doing this to Egypt. I hope this is it. No, God says, Moses, this is it. He declares this is the last. This is the end. He declares it. Now, notice God doesn't tell what's going to happen in the future in vague terms. He doesn't predict the future, in other words, in vague terms like a fortune teller or a psychic right? You know, fortune telling, you know, psychic, man, all these uh, 900 numbers or whatever you see on your TV, call a psychic. And, and, and man, I mean, think about it. They, they, th they talk in vague terms, right? I mean, I mean, man, I see some great things in your life. Really? I mean, good. I see some bad things. I mean, a single lady goes in and, and the psychic says, calls a psychic. Well, you know, I, I see a, a wedding bells in your future. You know, and that woman's like so excited. Are you kidding? I know it's a crazy fee, but I'm going to give you a tip because that's what I wanted to hear, right? I mean, listen, psychics speak in general. Don't go see a psychic. Not only is it sinful, first off, because it's sinful. Second off, because it's just stupid, right? I, I mean, if you do go see a psychic, please don't tell anybody, okay? If you do go see a psychic and tell someone, please don't tell them you go to Life Point, okay? So don't go see a psychic, Okay, come and see me. Give the money to you. give that money to the church. Come and see me. I'll tell you your future. You're gonna get sick. You're gonna die. Okay, guaranteed. Unless Jesus returns, and uh, the Titans are not gonna win the Super Bowl this year, right? I mean, we could go on and on. There's some things that we could tell. So my, the bottom line is God's not like a psychic. He's not like a, a fortune teller who can speak in vague terms about what's going to happen. He can specifically, clearly tell you exactly what's going to happen. He didn't say. I hope this is the last one, Moses. Man, I, I, I don't want to keep doing this. The Egyptians, he said, no, this is the last one. He didn't say, Egypt will pay one day. I mean, I can say, you know, any, church, any country that persecutes the church, they'll pay. Because we know vengeance is mine, says the Lord. That's a general statement. God didn't say, well, they'll pay one day. God said, 
to debt now. They're going to pay. He says how? The firstborn is going to die. He says when? Midnight. He says who it's going to affect? Egyptians, not those in Goshen, not the Hebrews, not the Jews, not the Israels, not God, not Israel, not God's people, right? He, he, he says specifically says everything that's going to happen because everything that's going to happen is not just God predicting what's going to happen. It's not that he just knows what's going to happen. He makes things happen. He creates it. He ordains it. Right? I mean, one commentator says that uh, in, in doing this, Moses was writing to help the Israelites know that they didn't just have to trust God as things happened to them. They needed to trust that God is the one who makes things happen. Now think about that truth for a moment. There's a huge difference in how you approach things. You either look at everything that happens. If you're a Christian and you say, oh man, I know this has happened. And man, I know God can take it and make it into good. That's true. That's Romans, right? Romans says God works. All, all things work together for good. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Right? So we know that's true. But what I want you to go is a little bit beyond that, a little deeper than that. And I want you to understand that God is not responding to anything that happens. Okay? God doesn't look out and respond and say, okay, i got to work to make this good. God makes things happen. God is in charge of what happens. That's why we need to look at this moment, and we need to look at what happened in Louisiana. We need to look at what happened in Minnesota. We need to look at what happened in Dallas. And we, as Christians, we don't need to look out into those moments and say, oh, wow, this is horrible, but God can make it into good. We need to look out and say, we know he will make it into good for those who love him, but we need to look at it and, and are called according to his purpose. But we need to look at it and say, okay, God is in control of this moment. He's not responding to this moment. And then how will we live in this moment to be agents that represent God's kingdom in this moment? Right? Because that's what everything's about. Everything's about the fame of God. And so we need to look at what's going on in Louisiana and Dallas and in, and in Minnesota and say, okay, God is in control of this. This is somehow, we can't understand it because a finite mind can never fully understand infinite. We cannot fully understand it, but we know God's in control even when it doesn't make sense. So we look at it and say, okay, this too is about God and his fame. I am his child. How do I embrace and live in this moment for the glory of God? That should be our task in this and every moment. And so, as we look at this, it's huge. Moses hasn't spoken to the Israelites, at least that we know of, since before the plagues. Moses has not spoken to the Israelites. Now, Moses did speak to the Israelites before the plagues. We don't know that he spoke to them since, but it doesn't say he did, but he does now. Why? Because there's preparation that needs to take place. This is it. God's declared, this is it. Tell the people to get their suitcases ready and their passports stamped because they're leaving the country. Right? They need to prepare. They need to get ready. And so Moses speaks. And then God's sovereignty in that can even be seen in the fact that the Israelites don't just leave Egypt. They're leaving wealthy. Now think about that for a moment. The Israelites have been enslaved for 400 years. They own no property. They're slaves. They have no bank account. They didn't get paid a wage for doing uh, their work. They were enslaved. They had nothing, no property, no money, nothing. So they are the poorest of the poor existing is all they're doing. But they're going to leave not only as free people, they're going to leave as free wealthy people. That's just God right there. Man, you'd never know what's happening tomorrow. 
you never know. Whatever you're in today, tomorrow, you never know. And so they're leaving wealthy, free people. Now, they didn't, plund, they didn't take the people's uh, possessions by force or strong-arm them. This is what's crazy. God said, this is the sovereignty of God. And then how it happened. God said, just go ask them. Ladies, go ask the ladies. Men, go ask the men. They did. Okay, you can have all of our stuff. That's just God, isn't it? They plundered them completely without force. Now, you know what plundering is, right? Plundering is when a nation conquers another nation. A nation doesn't plunder a nation unless it conquers that nation. So a nation here is conquered, and so they're, they're plundered by the conquering nation. So here's what God is doing. God is saying, I'm going to take care of my people. I'm not only making them free, I'm blessing them beyond measure. And in doing that, I am signifying very clearly that I have conquered Egypt. I've put my foot upon the neck of all of her gods and I've smacked them around showing they're nothing. I'm the one true Lord. And Egypt and all of her false gods are conquered. This is a fulfillment, by the way, of the promise that God spoke to Abe over 400 years ago. It's in Genesis chapter 15, just to give you the context of what's going on so you'll understand. Genesis 15, 13, and 14 says this. It says that, then the Lord said to Abram, now this is over 400 years earlier, know for certain, God doesn't speak in, uh, uh, you know, vague terms. He's very specific. You know this that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, leave that there a moment. I want you to see clearly what's happening here. God tells Abraham, Abraham, here's what you need to know. Your offsprings, man, they're going to be a light to the world. They're going to be enslaved for 400 years. Know for certain. I'm going to bring them out wealthy in 400 years. I'm going to bring them out with the possessions, but they're going to be slaves for 400 years. Now, here's what I want you to understand. When things are happening, don't think God's responding. Don't think the, the Israelite slavery in Egypt was like, oh, God was going, what do I need to do here? And it took him 400 years to get him out. No, God didn't respond. God created the moment. And you say, the Egyptians could say, well, if I believe that, I just don't, that's not fair. Well, we got to understand that everything's about God. Everything's not about us. We've got to start with theology with God, not us. And we've got to understand everything's about God, not us. And we've got to understand that God is in control. Everything that's happening in your life, you can see right here. He told each, this is what's happening. So don't think it's just is, it's a part of my plan. Whatever's happening to you, understand it's in the sovereign control of God. That ought to give you peace knowing it's not arbitrary. Okay, then in verse 14, he says, they're going to be there, but I will bring judgment on the nation. He's talking about Egypt, that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. God was very clear over 400 years before this exactly what would happen. And just as, as it said, it happened. Why? Because God's in control of everything that happens. He doesn't respond. He creates God doesn't respond, he creates. Now, Ligon Duncan points out, and I love this, he points out the fact that the thing that God blessed Israel with, and he blessed them with a, just a bounty of possession, right, and wealth, the thing that he blessed them with was used for both good and bad purposes, good and evil. Think about that. And I love that, because if you think about it, here's what happened. The people took that wealth, and you know what they did? They built a tabernacle with it later. That's great. You know what else they did with it? They take, took it and molded a golden calf to worship out of the gold. See, that's not great. 
See, that's, they use some of it for good and some of it for evil. And, and here's the reason I think that's so great. And even in this story, we can see everything that we have is by the hand of God. All the money that you have, all the resources that you have, all the possessions, all the relationships, your wife, your family, your kids, the air you breathe, everything is a gift from God entrusted to you. Now, none of that is evil, but it can be used for good or evil. Money, for example. Take your money. Money's not evil. The Bible doesn't say money's evil. The Bible says the love of money's evil. So money's not evil. But here's what happens. How you use it will determine whether it becomes good or evil. When you use it to honor God, it's good. When you use it to dishonor him, it's evil. Now let me help you to grasp what it means to honor God because when you hear that, some of you say, oh, well, that means if I've got the money I give to God is good and the money I keep for myself is evil. Not at all. No, when you read the scripture, not at all. God wants you to, use, he gives you stuff to enjoy life. You know what's God honoring when you spend your money? It's God honoring when you spend your money to, to enrich your family by taking them on a vacation. Did you know that? It's God honoring when you spend your money and invest it on a date with your wife and you wives are going, yeah, listen. It's God honoring when, when you spend it, you know, to honor, th- uh, to serve people. and to, It's God honoring when you enjoy life, when you celebrate, when you throw parties at your house. That's God honoring. But if you do those things without first giving God the first fruits, then all those things become God dishonoring because all those things now are taking the place of what you should have initially done with it. So you give God the first fruits, you give God the first, you tithe, then you use those things for noble purposes and for enriching purposes to enjoy life and thank God that you're on vacation and buy food and thank God that he's giving you food to eat and you know pay your electricity bill and thank God that he's giving you an air conditioning. Those are God honoring things, right? Are you using your money for evil or good? Are you using your hobbies for evil or good? Are you using sex for evil or good? Because sex is great. The use of it can become evil. What are you doing? This is great lessons for us from, from, from God here uh, as, as we look at this. And so God's sovereignty is also seen in the fact that the Egyptians begin to have mad respect for Moses. Now think about Moses. Moses is 80 years old at this time. Some of you are 80 or are approaching 80, right? What is it? 80 is the new 60, right? I mean, some of you are at 80, and as you're looking at 80, you know, you're thinking, oh, boy, I'm done. Boy, I've served my time. Well, that might be true in your company, but that's not true in God's kingdom, okay? Because as we see this, what we need to know is Moses is an 80-year-old man. He's two-thirds of the way through life. He dies at 120. God spent the first two-thirds of his life preparing him for the last third. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? If you still have breath in your lungs, that means God still has mission for your life, Okay? You quit, you, you, you quit on this planet when you breathe your last. Then you go in heaven and, and be with him and serve him forever. And so you never quit serving the Lord. You're never too old. Think about Moses. Moses, did you realize Moses had a speech problem? Remember, Moses had this speech problem that caused him to be very insecure, not think he knew what he was doing, uh, not think he could accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. I can't do this, God. I can't do this. Man, how many of us think, oh, I can't do this, God? what you're calling me to do. It's not about your ability. They didn't respect Moses, Moses because of his ability. Moses wasn't effective because of his ability. He was effective because of his faithfulness. Think about Moses. Moses, did you realize Moses was a murderer? I mean, dude murdered a guy 40 years ago. He saw him mistreating an Egyptian and he murdered the, I'm sorry, he saw an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew and he murdered the Egyptian. 
Now, I want to applaud Moses, and I want to say, dude, you blew it. Let's applaud him for saying he stood against injustice, okay? He stood against injustice. He blew it because he murdered, okay? There's a way you stand against injustice. Standing against injustice is, is right. Murder is wrong, right? And so Mo Moses murdered a man. Do you realize that the heroes of our faith, are, it's just lined up with murderers and adulterers and liars. And man, they're, they're, I mean, they're a bunch that looks just like a, and, and here's the thing, your past does not disqualify you from serving our God. Did you realize that? Nothing you've done because you're still alive. You, you still have air in your lungs. If you're here, I don't see any corpses sitting here. You still have mission in your life because you have blood in your veins. That's what we learn from Moses. We learned that Moses had mad respect from the, from the Egyptian servants and the Egyptian people, but not from Pharaoh. Pharaoh hated him. Why did Pharaoh hate him? Because he confronted Pharaoh. He confronted his sin. He told him the truth, okay? He told him the truth, and I promise you, uh, Pharaoh hated him because of that. But here's what I want you to know. The people loved him for the very reasons Pharaoh hated him. Did you realize that? Uh, the people loved him because all these people that lived under this dictator, man, don't you know they wanted to give him what for for all this time? And Moses has got the intestinal fortitudes, what we used to say in football, to do it. He, he's got the stuff to do it, right? I mean, he steps up and he confronts a man in grace, in truth. He's not belligerent. He, he steps up respectfully, confronts him with what's going on. Here's what I promise you. I talked about it last week. When you've got a friend in sin, you confront that friend in sin. You confront them and you care more. You, you might lose the friendship, but you've got to care more about the friend than the friendship. Okay? That's the right thing to do. Now, here's what I know. When you confront someone, they're never going to like it in the moment. They're never going to like it in the moment. But if they're a Christian, if you confront them with grace, not with uh, anger, not with, uh, you know, not with bitterness, but you confront someone with grace and biblically, not from your opinion, you confront someone, they will never like it in the moment, but I promise if it's biblical confrontation, they will respect it. They will respect it. They will respect it because people respect people who do the right thing. Moses was doing the right thing. They respected Moses because he is a man of character and integrity. He did what he said he would do. Moses said, it's going, the Nile's going to turn to blood, blood. Frogs going to come, frogs. Mosquitoes, gnats, hail, darkness. Everything Moses said would happen, happened. Are you a man of integrity? Part of integrity is I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. Now, sometimes you say, man, I'm going I'm, I'm to be there and you show up late. That's, I'm not saying it's total perfection. Nobody's perfect. But are you consistently do what you say you're going to do? Can people trust that you will do what you say you're going to do? Or do they know your talk? You see, Moses was a man of character. Moses, they knew that they could trust Moses. Are you a trustworthy man or woman of character? All of these things is the reason that Moses had mad respect, that and God took it and gave mad respect to the Egyptians for Moses. The world needs to see Christian men and women 
that are more concerned about leading and standing for what's right than they do about caring for themselves. I tell my staff all the time, I've told my staff this over and over and over. Your objective should not be for people to like you. Your objective should be for people to respect you. Now, don't hear me wrong. I do not want people to hate me, okay? I want people to like me. Only a moron wants people not to like them, right? I mean, you see that person, you're like, that dude's a moron. I I want people to like me, but that can't be my objective. If my objective is for you to like me, I cannot lead you properly nor godly. I will lead you in a way that makes this group of people happy because I want to please them or makes this group of people happy because I want to please them. I need to lead you not based on how you feel. I need to lead you based on what's right, and I cannot do that. If I need you, I cannot lead you. And so therefore, I I, I want to be respected, and I promise if you respect me, you will like me. So I hope you get the point for when I tell our staff, that should be your objective is to be is to be trustworthy, to be a man of character, to be a man of integrity, to be a man that represents your God well because that's what Moses did and it garnered mad respect. I've had to fire people before. In the moment, they didn't like that. But because if you get fired here, I mean, man, you, you fire yourself, really. And, and, and so when, when, when we've had to let people go, what's happened is generally, they don't like that in the moment. Most everyone have come back and said uh, later, text me all the time. Hey, man, how can I do this? I appreciate this. How can I do that? Because listen, do you do the right thing the right way? People don't like it necessarily in the moment. Moses did the right thing the right way. He led for the kingdom of God, for the benefit of the kingdom of God, not for his own benefit. He could have been killed at any moment before Pharaoh, but he said, I'm going to do it because it's what God's called me to do, no matter what it costs me. People respect that. People had mad respect for Moses. So as we see this, Moses went into Pharaoh and he dropped the bomb and he left angry. I love that. Now, when you see that, you say, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Back up, back up just a moment. Because as we back up a moment, what we see is, hold on, after plague nine, it says that after the darkness, Moses is before Pharaoh. Pharaoh refuses to let the people go. So Pharaoh said, okay, Moses, if I see your face again, I'll kill you. I'll kill you, right? So now it's like Moses is before Pharaoh again. So what's going on? Here's what's going on. Moses is before Pharaoh. I don't think he ever left. Moses is before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, Moses, let me tell you, after plague nine, Moses, let me tell you this. After, if if I see your face again, I'm going to kill you, right? I think Moses gets angry right here. (laughs) You know, I understand it. I think Moses gets angry and Moses says, you're going to kill me. Well, let me tell you, you just called a curse down on yourself. Oh, little man and here's what's going to happen because you refuse to do what God wants you to do he's going to take the firstborn of all the people uh, even you of all the of all your animals he is going to just kill the firstborn throughout all the land drops the mic and walks off that's what he did so Moses left angry and you might think that's harsh why would God kill all the Egyptian firstborn when it was Moses who was, or when it was Pharaoh who was the jerk? Have you thought about that? It was Pharaoh who was blatantly disobedient, rebellious, antagonistic, hostile to God. Why would God kill the firstborn of the cows when Moses was the one who was a jerk? Well, because we said last week, I think there's two reasons. One, we said last week, your sin never just affects you. 
When you sin, it's going to affect anybody in your wake. The more leadership you have, the higher position you have, the more people that are going to be affected. That's just common sense, right? Pharaoh was the leader of the entire nation, so everyone in the nation and under his leadership would be affected by his sin. Just like if the president of the United States is in grievous sin, the whole country is going to be affected. That's just common sense. Husband, you commit sin, your wife, your children. Wife, you commit sin, your, your husband, your children. On and on and on. I, we, our sin never just affects us. It affects everyone in our wake. Secondly, there are no truly innocent people on the planet. There are no truly innocent people on the planet. We want to say, well, what about the innocent person in a jungle somewhere that's never heard the gospel? Well, first, we're assuming they're an innocent person. There are no innocent people because we're all born hell-bound. We're all born with a heart that goes against God. So there are no innocent people, first off. There are no innocent people in Egypt. Now, think about this. The Egyptians had enslaved the Hebrews for 400 years. Now, Pharaoh at any moment could have declared they're gone and all, but there were there were uh, millions of people in Egypt where were they why would their cries not stand up and say what are you doing Pharaoh it is a sin to own people slavery is wrong you say well they might have killed he might have killed them okay so when, when where does the scripture say that we only do stuff if it if it doesn't harm us at all do the right thing if it if you get something out of it no, we do what's right, no matter the cost. You lose a friend, so be it if you're doing it for the right reason. You lose your job, so be it if you're doing it for the right reason. Right? Where are those people? And so, listen, when you affect, and, and, and here's, here's what I need you to understand, and this speaks to the moment that we live in in our culture. There are sins of commission, and there are sins of omission. Sins of commission are sins that we know we do, we do something that dishonors God. It's a sinful act. That's a sin of commission. There are sins of omission. Sins of omission are sins that I commit where I know I should do something. I should stand for something. I should stand against injustice until that day, and I refuse to do it. You will answer for both your sins of commission and your sins of omission on judgment day. There's not a Christian will stand before God and answer and be judged about his righteousness or her righteousness. If you are a true believer, that's taken care of. The judgment will not be, are you righteous or not? That is in Jesus. But the judgment will be based on how you have lived and what you've done with what you've been given, including the moments. You will be judged according to that. And I want you to be judged well as your pastor. I want to present the truth so that I, I want to proclaim the truth so that I can present you holy as the scripture tells us to Christ. That's my job. And I want to present, proclaim the truth to present you well at judgment. And what you need to understand is when you remain silent in such a time as this, you're complicit in the whole deal. It's a sin of omission. And we need to repent of sins of omission. And we need to know that sin divides, but the gospel unites. And be champions for the gospel. And so, that's exactly, that's exactly what we see happening here. God is sovereign in his judgment. God is sovereign in his discrimination. He says, I will not bring this, this, this plague, this death upon Egypt. I will discriminate between Egypt and, 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 and uh, Israel. Here's what you need to understand. God's a discriminating God. In other words, not everybody's getting into heaven. 
It doesn't matter if you just worship something, Muslims, Hindus, you know, uh, Mormons, all these people that worship different gods than what we worship, they're not going to heaven because they're sincere. Only in Jesus, God is a discriminating God. He's a judging God. His judgment is just. His, his judgment is just, and his standard is true and pure and righteous. He's a judgmental, discriminating God, and his sovereignty is seen in his judgment. God says, you, Pharaoh, won't let my people out of Egypt. I'm going to come to Egypt. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to send my death angel, my angel of death through, and he is going to take the firstborn. Here's the lesson for all people. If God's presence is beautiful and glorious to those who know him, and it is absolutely devastating to those who don't. Did you get that? His presence is beautiful. It's glorious to those who don't. It's devastating to those who don't. So, as, as we look at this, verse 6, he said, there will be a great cry in Egypt like never before or like never after. We see the Israelites cry out to God for redemption, and he responds. We see the Israelites cry out to Pharaoh for relief, and he doesn't. Now we see the Egyptians, because of this, crying out to their gods, and they don't respond because God's choked them all out. They don't exist, right? God says not even a dog will bark against Israel. Now that's a figure of speech saying there's gonna be chaos all over Egypt. There's gonna be people screaming. The dogs are gonna be barking. Chaos, but not in Goshen. Not even the dog's gonna bark. Peace in Goshen because of the presence of God. Darkness all over Egypt, but there's light in Goshen. There's chaos all over Egypt, but there's peace in Goshen because of the presence of God, because of God's people. This could also be a hit on Anubis. Anubis was their God of death. They were polytheists. Anubis was their god of death, and, and he had a canine body. He had a canine body. So God, I think, even here could be going, I'm going to smack you god of death around now. He can't do anything about this. You can't stop God. You can't hope to contain him because he's God. He's the one true God. So God is sovereign over every detail. And what we see about this is if you're in Christ on the day of judgment, there will not even be made one sound against you. Are you in Christ? Let's close it out. Verses nine and 10. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Do you see why God's doing this? He's not going to listen. This is about my fame. This is about my glory. He's not going to listen. So my wonders may be multiplied. Look at what he says. Moses and Aaron did all these things, all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. We got to talk. That's what, that's what my point is here because we see it over and over. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. Here we see that God is sovereign over the heart. I could read them all to you because they're everywhere. But what you need to know is from the plagues, in the plagues that we've covered this summer 19 times, we see a reference to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Three times, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Six times, God, uh, six times, it's just in general hardening. And 10 times, 10 times, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 19 times. Now, what we do is we see this, and sometimes it makes somebody feel a little nervous. Oh, what does that, well, that makes me nervous. God hardened his heart. And listen, that shouldn't make you nervous. If we completely understand it, it wouldn't because it doesn't mean that God hardened Pharaoh against his desires. 
It was not like, please don't get the picture of like Pharaoh's really wanting to serve God here. Pharaoh's wanting to, he wanted to break after plague one. He wanted to tap after plague one and say, I'm out. That wasn't what was happening. Pharaoh didn't want to serve God at all. God's not forcing Pharaoh against his desires. He's hardening him in his desires. Pharaoh's responsible for his actions. Pharaoh's responsible for his sins, just as you are, because they were exactly what Pharaoh wanted to do. Right? I mean, you got to understand God's sovereignty and God's sovereign over the heart does not mean that you're a robot. It doesn't mean you're a puppet because robots do exactly what they're programmed, you know, and, and, and puppets do exactly what the puller of the strings tells them to do. That's not what God, you don't do anything under compulsion. The Bible says that God's sovereignty doesn't viol do violence to our will. It doesn't violate. In, in other words, here's what you need to understand. At birth, we are all hell bound. Okay? At birth, we're all hell bound. We're all headed to hell because of sin. We're born sinners. You say, well, that wasn't fair because Adam and Eve sinned and I got to pay for it. Okay, you've all chosen to sin. Okay? Either way you look at it, you're born sinners and you've chosen to just, man, go hog wild with it. Right? I mean, we're born sinners and we're, we're, we choose to sin. So we're guilty. We're guilty of God before God sin divides. Sin separates. Sin separates us from God. As a result of that, our hearts are dead. He says in Ephesians, you're dead in your sins and trespasses, right? And so here's the issue. Our hearts are inclined toward evil always. That's what the Bible says. We don't love God. We don't seek God. The Bible says no one seeks God. We seek the things of God, but no one seeks God. When the Bible says seek God and you'll find him when you seek him with all your heart, it's talking to a Christian, a Christian whose heart's been alive. That's our job. My job is to seek God, run hard after him every day. But the Bible says that there's not a person who is not redeemed that seeks God because we're hardened. Pharaoh was hardened. And so if you notice, that didn't take his ability to respond away. In plagues one, two, Four, five, seven, eight. I think I got those right. One, two, four, five, seven, and eight. Six plagues. God gave him an opportunity to respond. Pharaoh, if you will release them, it won't happen. If you don't release them, this is what's going to happen. Blood's going to, now it's going to be blood. Frogs going to be everywhere if you don't do it. He had an opportunity to respond, but he didn't because his heart's hard. So it's not an issue of fairness because he had the opportunity. Let me tell you what the issue of fairness is. Why did God soften Moses' heart? That's the issue of fairness. Why did he soften my heart? Because the issue is our hearts are bent against God. The only way that my heart can know God is if the Holy Spirit convicts me. Right? If not, then it's just total universalism and everybody goes or, or we got a God of grace, God of judgment. So it's not about, the, the, what's fair is not that, that, that Pharaoh, oh, God didn't soften his heart. What's fair is that, what's, what, the question of fairness is, why did God soften mine? Because I don't deserve it. So it's grace. That's what's grace about it, right? So God is sovereign over the heart. He's sovereign over everything. There's nothing outside of God's control, including this moment we live in. What will you do in this moment to bring God glory? I haven't even said the, our takeaway, and now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to it. Our takeaway is death and deliverance. You see, that's what we see, isn't it? God's announcing death to Egypt, deliverance for Israel. He's announcing death to those who oppose him, and he's announcing deliverance to those who put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their home. Today, for you, he's announcing death, physical death. We all physically die because of sin, but he's announcing spiritual death, annihilation apart from him. 
spending eternity apart from him, not annihilation, apart from him. He's announcing spiritual death to those who oppose him, and he's announcing deliverance to those who have the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, upon their heart. Which one are you? Which one are you? Death or deliverance? Death or deliverance? We're going to pray. Travis and the band's going to come out. And as Travis and the band come out, this is our time of response. We, we, we should have, everybody should respond. You've heard God's word. Some of you are going to respond by worship, by singing. Some of you are going to respond by, by repenting of something. Some of you are going to respond in prayer about what's happening and how God can help you be a bigger part of the change and what needs to happen. And, and, and what can we do? God, God, God's going to cause some of you to have some things on your heart. Some of you are just going to respond in worship because God is sovereign. God is, I mean, you're seeing that through the plagues. We're going to respond in giving and tithing, honoring God with the money he's given us. I don't know how you respond. That's between you and the Holy Spirit. But I ask that you be obedient and respond as he has called you to. So I'm going to pray and, and we're going to respond. So let's, let's do that, please. Father, we love you so much. Thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you that you're a God who delivers through your grace. God, I don't know why you, you saved me. I'm grateful that you did. Thank you, Father, for your grace. God, I pray for those here today who don't know you. I pray that you would soften their hearts. I pray that you would convict them. I pray that they would know who you are. God, I pray for all of us here today that we would look at the moment in our time and that we would say, what can we do to be the change? What can we do to step into this moment and to love and to serve and to be agents of the gospel and represent the kingdom well? God, I pray that today, thank you for those to whom you've announced deliverance. And I pray for those to whom you've announced judgment, that they can also be delivered today. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.